Well, do keep your Bibles open at this uh, little section in uh, the book of Acts. We're starting tonight a series on Sunday evenings in this book, uh, which I don't know how long it's going to take us, but we'll, we'll work our way through it. It might not all be me, always be me that's preaching on it, maybe uh, most of the time. Uh, I'll see what I can wangle with the authorities, see if they can let me do that. Um, but I wanted to look at this this evening because it seems to me that it sets in context the great mission that we have as God's people together, as His church, Luke's contribution to our understanding of Jesus and our understanding of Christianity, our understanding of what the church is about, and our understanding of the Christian mission is absolutely crucial. Luke takes up more space in terms of words, uh, words in the New Testament, I think, than Paul does. And so, therefore, what Luke has to teach us is obviously intended to shape our thinking about the Lord Jesus and about the church. Uh, over in the UK, and I think it's spilled over to here, Professor Dermot McCulloch of Oxford University has uh, rocked, I think would be true to say, rocked the scholarly world by a number of his publications, uh, he, he wrote a great book on the Reformation. He wrote a great book on Thomas uh, Cranmer, the great Anglican theologian. And most recently, he's written a book called The History of Christianity. And in a review on a very famous newspaper in the UK, which is read, I know, by, by the more thinking and thoughtful Americans who've heard of it, uh, especially the left-wing uh, Americans, so I, I don't imagine any of you have read it. Uh, in a review of, uh, of this book, Christina Odona uh, wrote this, the sheer breadth of McCulloch's chronicle is almost subversive. At a time when Christianity in the public arena is dismissed as the poor relation to be shunted off to the sidelines, here is a huge masterly chronicle that invites the church center stage and celebrates its global influence and extraordinary vision. There's a secular observation on a secular view of the church in which McCulloch, as a secular writer who is friendly at least towards Christianity, is trying to show in the broad canvas of history the influence of the church on the world. Because, as he observes, Christianity is a phenomenon of history. The fact that from a, a handful of people most of whom were unlettered and came from an unimportant Roman province in the backwaters of the empire, with no access to the levers of influence in the empire itself, bearing a message that offended just about everybody, they managed to turn the world upside down. In fact, that phrase comes from Luke here in Acts chapter 17. And within two centuries, it is this minority religion that becomes the dominant force in the Roman Empire. And we need to ask the question, how did that happen? I imagine as we ask that question, we're also asking the question, how can Christianity have a similar impact on our culture and our world today as it had at the very beginning? Now, what, what Luke does, and this is his distinctive contribution, is what Luke does is give us a Christian view of the history of Christianity. That's what he's doing in Acts in, at many, in many respects, as we shall see. And he's answering in the course of doing that. Of course, we mustn't 
We mustn't uh, be anachronistic. We mustn't read back our times into His times. But in the course of doing it, I do think He helps us to answer some of the questions that the church is thinking about today. This church, every church that is a thinking church, what is the mission of the church? Why are we here? Why has God left us on earth? Why is it that when you become a Christian, you don't get uh, beamed up into heaven? If you remember the Star, uh, Star Trek movies, or are really old and you remember the real Star Trek, and you got into trouble and you said, beam me up, Scotty, you know, you got immediately onto the mothership. Well, why is it we're not there? Why is it that when we become Christians, we aren't just immediately beamed up into the mothership, into heaven, into the presence of the Lord Jesus? So it helps to answer the question, what is the mission of the church? Why are we still here? What is the essential message of the church? And how should we adjust ourselves, our style, our manner of delivery, or maybe even the message to uh, different audiences? Or should we not? These are some of the issues, I think, that are addressed by this book. Now, one of the things that strikes you as you read the book of Acts, and we're going to look today really at the big picture of the book. I'm not going to expound these verses we've read. We'll look at these again next week and try and expound them in their context. But I want to look at the big picture of the book so that you get an idea of the global scene that, uh, that Luke is giving to us here. Now, I'm, I'm not a teacher. I'm a preacher. So, what I'm doing tonight is harder for me than it is for somebody who is used to, to lecturing or teaching. There's, there's a difference, and, and there's a reason why I've always had to bomb out whenever I've done any seminary teaching. It's because I get too agitated and excited, and I start to preach uh, the students, and they don't like that, apparently. Uh, so, so, there you go. But one of the things that strikes you is you read the book as a whole. So, I, I might start kind of preaching a little bit here. As you look at the book as a whole, one of the things that strikes you is how offensive Christianity is in the context in which it bursts out into the world. I mean, just about everybody is offended by this message. The Jews, for example, who hear the Christian message are getting all offended by the fact that the Jews get a bad report when it comes to getting rid of their Messiah. That, that, is, not, that is not popular among a whole realm of people who are scattered right throughout the Roman Empire. And the Christians make it even worse because when they start preaching their message, they go to the Jews first. So they go to the Jews first to tell the Jews that they're responsible for getting rid of their Messiah. Not, not the best kind of approach to start off with. They offend the non-Jews. They offend the non-Jews at a number of levels. They, they insist on teaching non-Jews from uh, the Jewish Scripture, especially the Greek translation of the Jewish Scripture. They use that Scripture even in the instruction of non-Jews in what Christianity is all about. They offend non-Jews, especially those who have a materialistic point of view. And there were a number of non-Jews, an increasing number of non-Jews in, in the world who were very materialistic. They offended them by introducing the supernatural elements that you find in, in, in the Christian message. The obviously supernatural resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the, the, the supernatural miracles that were being performed by the apostles. These were things that were offensive to the materialist. And then there were people at the opposite end of the spectrum, people who were uh, incipiently at least Gnostic, that is, with a view of human flesh and, uh, and uh, the human body that, was, uh, that regarded the human flesh and the human body as offensive 
as an evil thing, a thing to be avoided. The, the, real, the real development that you could have as an individual is at the spiritual level and that the flesh is something to leave behind. They're offended. They're offended by the resurrection. Here is God raising the physical body of Jesus from the dead. They're, they're offended about the teaching that, in fact, you can glorify Christ or glorify God in your body, that, that the body isn't evil, that, in fact, the body becomes an instrument that you can use for righteousness and for the glory of God. They're offended as they listen to that. They're offended by the language of exclusivity. That is, the language of Peter, for example, who stands up and says that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. You want saved? You want right with God? You want to have a relationship with God? Well, you need to know there is no other name. There's no other way. This is the only way. And going into a multicultural, multi-religious society such as the first century was with polytheism, uh, the order of the day in which the Romans could abide anybody and could put up with anybody so long as that person was not totalitarian in the way in which they expressed their faith. Well, they really were offended by Christianity. Well, it's into that context that, Peter, that uh, Luke rather writes this two-part book that consists of two kitchen rolls worth of material. I don't know if you have kitchen rolls here. Or you call it something else. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? No. Uh, see, we're going to have a problem here. So what I should really do is go around the stores, first of all, and, and learn the, the lingo for all these things that just come out of the air whenever I'm talking without any preparation, which is a lot of these, these things that well, if you can imagine stuff that you, well, if you don't have it, then you can't even imagine it, really. These are, these are, these are about 35-foot scrolls. They're 35 feet long, all rolled up, okay? Each one of these books, Luke and, and Acts, and uh, toilet paper. You understand toilet paper, don't you? Yeah, that's good. I, I'm glad to hear that. There you've got the image in, in your, oh, no, that's the wrong image to have uh, in your mind. Luke's got these two, he's got a lot to say. It doesn't fit into one scroll, one roll of toilet paper. It has to fit into two rolls of toilet paper. And so you go and you get from Luke this double whammy. You ask for one, and you get the two of them, the second one thrown in. So it's a good deal, and therefore something that you as Americans would go for. And so where he's given us this two-part book. And he tells us right at the very beginning of of the book, what his book is about. In fact, you can see it even here in Acts chapter 1. He's told us that part 1 was about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the implication is that part 2 is going to be about what Jesus continues to do and to teach. So there's, there's at the heart of it what his book is about. First of all, this evening, this book of Acts is about the acts of Jesus. That's the first thing that I want to say about it. Uh, he's telling a story, and, and uh, if you have a moment just to turn to Luke chapter 1, or you can listen to me read to you, but in Luke chapter 1, he gives us the heading for the whole of the, the two-volume work. Uh, he's writing to this man called Theophilus, which as uh, somebody said is Theophilus name you can come up with, but there, there, there you go. Uh, Theophilus had to live with that awful name, and uh, he gets two books written to him 
uh, and they're about Jesus. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. I want you to notice the the, the tense of that, the the language that, that Luke uses there. What he's writing about is about things that have been accomplished. That phrase applies to all that he's writing, to Luke and Acts, to the one, the one work that we want to call Luke-Acts, okay? Uh, things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, here's Luke then giving us his stated purpose for his whole book. It's carefully researched. It's, uh, he's looked into the people involved. He's put it down on paper, and he's done so so that his reader, Theophilus, and it doesn't much really matter whether Theophilus is an individual or, or a, a body of people or a group of people that he represents. I don't think that that matters so much to us, although the phrase most excellent is, is often used in a formal sense of something dedicated to an individual, so it may, may well be an individual. But in a sense, that's, that's irrelevant. But this individual or group of people are people who need certainty, certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And that's Luke's goal. I want to ask the question, I wonder if, if Luke meets that goal as he as he sets out to do that. There's a famous story of Professor W. M. Ramsey, who was a scholar and an archaeologist and a a skeptic about Christianity, and he set out to prove his own doubts by investigating the New Testament in particular, by investigating what Luke writes in his gospel and in the book of Acts. And what, what William Ramsey discovered as he set out to do that was this, that as he looked into Luke's description of towns and the titles of officials that he used and the references to customs in the ruins and the landscapes and in the extant documents that he discovered in the Middle East. He discovered that all of this stuff that he was finding were confirming the claims that Luke in Acts is making, and it was through that very investigation that this man, this great professor, was converted to Christianity. So, if Luke could reach one man and give him certainty about the things he'd been taught. Well, it works out in the life of William Ramsey. Well, as we come to look at this, we discover that the focus is on Jesus. It's all about Jesus in part one, the acts of Jesus, part two, the acts of Jesus. Luke is a Christocentric theologian, and as a historian, his declared aim is to write a history of all that Jesus began to do and teach in Luke, and continue to do and teach in Acts. Now, let me, let me point out some parallels between these two books. For example, if you look at the structure of the books, you discover that in Luke, the movement is all of Christ going towards Jerusalem. When you look at Acts, you discover that it's almost a mirror opposite. It is a movement from, from Jerusalem increasingly out towards the world. You find, for example, that there are parallels between the two books. There, there, is the, there are the prophetic voices of Anna and Simeon in Luke, 
as they describe Jesus' birth and so on. And there is Peter's reference to the prophetic fulfillment of Joel at the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. Both the gospel and the book of Acts begin with a period of waiting, prayer, anticipation. You find figures in Luke, for example, who are waiting for the consolation of Israel. You find the disciples at the beginning of Acts, and they're waiting for the promise of the Spirit to be fulfilled. In the gospel, you find the coming of the Spirit, of the baptism of Jesus. In Acts, you find the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And you find, as you look at both books together, you find Jesus is active in remaking Israel, Luke chapter 6, in remaking the Exodus in Luke chapter 9, in remaking the Passover in Luke 22, in remaking the kingdom in Acts 1, in remaking Sinai in chapter 2, remaking the covenant blessing in Acts 5, remaking the covenantal curse in Acts 5, and remaking the government of the people in Acts 6. Jesus is remaking things. He's making all things new. It's all about the restoration of all things, the restoration of the people of God from their exile, and they're being brought into liberty. So, it's a book about the acts of Jesus. It's a book about the acts of Jesus in fulfillment of Scripture. That's the second thing. The first part of the book of Acts is flooded with Old Testament references that alert us to the fact that there are unique and unrepeatable things happening there that uh, in many ways are a foil to things that we've read in Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, we find a a a transition taking place between the story of Israel on the one hand and the story of Jesus on the other. There There are godly characters, we find, proclaiming the realization of Israel's hopes with the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. There are angelic revelations combined with prophetic declarations that explain the significance of the great events that follow. And Jesus' sermon in Acts 4 is is defining of the whole book. Look Acts, that is. He proclaims the fulfillment of prophecy. He says He is the servant of the Lord. He cites Isaiah chapter 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news. And the opposition that Jesus receives, the suffering that He undergoes is all in fulfillment of Scripture. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord. And when you go to Acts, you find that the Apostle Paul uses similar language. He, he draws from the same servant songs to describe his own sufferings and his own ministry. And he says, in some senses, Paul, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus, like the other apostles, is continuing some of that suffering of Jesus, the suffering servant. Jesus is still active. He is active in Acts through the ministry of the apostles, their ministry, their suffering. Is Jesus suffering? When, when, when Paul is persecuting, Saul rather, is persecuting the Christians, Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because to persecute Jesus' people is to persecute Jesus. Jesus is alive and well and active in the New, in the New Testament period through His apostles, through His church at that point. You can see that as you see the, connect, the connections that are made. I think, I think one of the best 
uh, ways of seeing the connection between the two books is at the end of Luke's gospel, which is a kind of lead-in to the second volume, uh, where the Lord Jesus talks to His disciples and He says to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the, in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. And He opened their mind to understand the Scriptures and said to them, here's His summary of the Scripture. He said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's what the first volume was about. Luke, the Christ should suffer and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There's Luke at the end of his gospel setting us up for what's going on in the book of Acts. What is it about? It's about how Jesus, the reigning and ascended Lord, completes His work by getting His message, His kingdom, out to the nations. And it's no surprise to discover that Luke ends, as we'll see in a moment, he ends with Paul in Rome. The gospel has succeeded. All the nations of the world now, captured in the very idea of Rome, using Rome as a metaphor for all the nations of the world. The gospel has gone out into all the world. It's claiming all the world. Here is King Jesus claiming all the world for Himself from His throne, starting with His ascension at the beginning of the book and ending in Rome at the end. The book of Acts is about the acts of Jesus in fulfillment of Scripture through this is the third point, through the ministry of the apostles. You just see the Holy Spirit's footprints right throughout this book, working through these key men uh, who are eye and ear witnesses of all that Jesus has said and done. There they are now, and they're, they're spilled out into the world. Now, here's an interesting thing. It, uh, it always surprised me. When I was growing up as a little boy, and I first discovered that Luke and Acts were, belonged to the same man and had been written by the same man, and I used to wonder why it was that in the providence of God, in the compilation of the Scriptures as we now have them, in the canonical context as we, the, the phrase is used, the way the canon has been formed, why is it that, that this has been separated from the gospel? Why is Acts and Luke not together? That would be more straightforward, more sensible. I wonder why it is that the Holy Spirit has superintended the work in such a way that John gets in the way. Now, I don't think there's any accident here because it's in John that we have the clearest teaching, I think, in the New Testament concerning the role in the ministry of the apostles. What is their role in ministry? Well, Jesus says it's, it's, it's absolutely vital to the ongoing, His ongoing mission. He is going to come to them. He is going to be with them. He is going to make His home with them. He, is, he has revealed to them His Word. He's given to them the glory that the Father gave Him. He's given them the words the Father has given Him to say. He will remind them. He'll give them the Spirit of God who will remind them of all that Jesus said. He will give them the Spirit of God who will lead them into all the truth. He will give them the Spirit who will remind them or teach them things that are to come. And through their witness, you and I come to believe. Our place is we come to believe by believing the witness of the apostles. That's where we fit in the scheme of things. 
So having understood that from John's gospel, we're then able to return to Luke's book and discover as we read the book of Acts, this is what is happening. Here are the apostles. Signs and wonders are being done by the apostles. The church is growing by the apostles. Paul, or Luke rather, I always say Paul because Paul always comes to my mind, whether I'm preaching on Isaiah or anything, so you'll just have to get used to that. But, but Luke says, Luke focuses in on the ministry of Peter and Paul. He kind of, you know, he mentions all the others, but, but he focuses on their ministry. They become the center of his thinking as he, uh, as he begins to focus in here. And there are parallels. There are parallels between Jesus and Peter and Paul. Peter and, and Paul do miracles like the Jesus miracles. And, and in the life of Paul, for example, I mentioned that there are some of Jesus' sufferings reproduced. Paul is first accepted and then he's rejected by the people. He visits the temple. He's opposed by the, the Sadducees. He's seized by the mob. He's struck by the high priest's officials. He experiences four trials as Jesus did. He, he goes through in similar kind of experiences to the Lord Jesus. Now, He isn't the Lord Jesus. He isn't the Savior, but He's an apostle. He is an apostolic delegate. He's been sent by Jesus. He has all the authority of the Lord behind Him. And in His experience, what we're meant to see is the risen Lord, Jesus from His throne, is pushing now the message of the gospel out to the world. Remember I said that this is a record. These two books together are a record of what has been accomplished, what has been accomplished among us. It's what Jesus has done. This is not a case of Luke writing a history and then stopping before the end. This is the way he wanted us to see it. This is it. This is his story. This is what he has to say. He's teaching the church, this is what God in Christ has accomplished. Christ died and rose. Christ's kingdom is stretching from Jerusalem to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, let me just spell. I have no idea when I started, so I don't know when I'm finishing. Let me, let me explain how this ministry of the apostles moves. It moves geographically. The flow of church growth goes from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the Gentile world, and ends in Rome. It grows numerically. The, in fact, the numerical growth becomes a kind of uh, punctuation point in the story. Those who received the Word were baptized, and they were added, 3,000 souls. Uh, they were added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. The Word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. The church throughout all Judea and, Galatia, and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up and multiplied. The Word of God increased and multiplied. The churches were strengthened and they increased in numbers daily. The, church, the Word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. These are the punctuation points of the story. We're meant to read them and see, do you see what Jesus has accomplished? Do you see what He has done? The rejected carpenter of Nazareth, the crucified Messiah, this one who's died, being dead, buried, has been raised from the dead. And do you see how it is that the Lord is giving to His Son the nations for His inheritance. He's doing this. What the Lord said, He's doing it. And Rome and Samaria and Jerusalem are the foretaste of a great harvest. The whole world is going to be impacted by what the Messiah has done. And I think you can see this happening 
as they, theologically, as they begin to reflect on what's going on here. There are key markers that tell a theological story, a story about God, Jerusalem. It's where it all starts, the city of David. It's why Peter starts there and starts by quoting David in his sermon on the day of Pentecost because there's this relationship between David and Jesus, and he's announcing the good news of the king has come. Great David's greatest son is on the throne. The king has come. And when it says that the gospel is to go from Jerusalem, it's reminding us the king has arrived in his holy city. And the gospel is to go to Judea and Samaria. You know the background to that. You know that this is where the nation had split apart after the death of King Solomon, ripped apart by Rehoboam, never reconciled, never again one nation, frequently at war, driven into separate exiles. These two rivals had been promised in the prophet Isaiah and in other prophets. These two rivals had been promised that they would be reconciled. They would be brought back together again under God's new king. Jesus is proclaimed to Judea and Samaria, and they are reconciled as people from Judea and Samaria are reconciled in Christ Jesus. Here we have a a visual aid of the future restoration of all things. Isaiah had said the Messiah's servant would reunite Israel and reach out to the nations. The second psalm had promised that God's Son and the world's true King would inherit the nations. The very last phrase that Jesus uses here about uh, the ends of the earth is a, a quotation from Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song for He's done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. All the ends of the earth have seen, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Luke is saying, do you see what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ? That's why I'm telling you this story. Do you see what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ? The King has come. And there's another indication of this. If you look at the bookends of Acts, the bookends of Acts are references to the kingdom of God. It's not not widely used in the book, but it is used noticeably at the beginning and at the end. Uh, the, the, The end of Acts, for example, in chapter 28 in verse 23, we find that uh, the Jews appointed a day when they came to him, to Paul in his lodgings, and from morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets, the kingdom of God. And the very end of Acts ends like this. He lived for, there for two years at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Here's one of the things that strikes you, you see, when when you read the book of Acts, the two main human characters in the book, Peter and Paul, kind of fizzle out. Peter disappears after making a, a crucial speech in Acts chapter 15. Paul kind of fizzles out, and at the end of the story, we are left with what? We are left with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. It's mentioned at the beginning where the disciples are asking Jesus, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And they're thinking, they're thinking in you know, political terms, they're thinking in military terms, they're thinking in their nationalistic way, and they're told, 
I'm not going to go through all this again. As I mean, you can imagine the Lord getting, well, I, maybe the Lord doesn't get frustrated like that, probably doesn't, but, but you can imagine if it was you or me, we'd get frustrated. I thought you'd got the point by now. Just wait till the Spirit comes, then you'll get the point. And they got the point. At significant periods in the book of Acts, we have reference to the kingdom. When the gospels preached to Samaria, it was the good news of the kingdom of God that's preached. When it's preached at Ephesus in the synagogue and outside, Paul speaks, he argues persuasively about the kingdom of God. And when he's talking about the sufferings a believer or a church must go through, he talks about the many hardships that we go through to enter the kingdom of God. It was the kingdom of God that was preached to Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles, preached at the beginning and the end of Luke's story, found in the context of evangelism and church leadership. The kingdom of God is about believing in, submitting to the risen Messiah Jesus as our Savior and Judge. What's Luke writing about? He's writing about what Jesus has accomplished and we have to see Luke Acts together. This is what Jesus said and did in person and by the apostles. It's not a handbook. It's a history book. It's look what Jesus accomplished. He fulfilled Scripture. He is the exalted King. He reigns from His throne. Look at the record of this phenomenon that still captures the attention of an academic in Oxford University to this day. Consider this phenomenon and understand this is part of the legacy of grace to us. So, where are we in the story? Are we Acts 29? Outside of the story? I think we're inside the story. We're caught up into the story. We're part of this great enterprise of getting the gospel out to the ends of the earth so that King Jesus is seen in all His splendor, by every nation under heaven, and confessed by every tongue and language under heaven to the glory of His name. That's our great, that's our great calling. And uh, we'll get beyond lecturing, and we'll find our way to preaching one of these days. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that in Your great mercy, You have called us to this great task to which You've given, your, to, given to Your church in the world to get the gospel, the apostolic gospel out. Thank You for those men who were the, the forerunners, the, the men to whom You gave Your Word and who have given their Word to us. We have it here in our New Testament, an apostolic Word that is sure. Help us to re-articulate it, to re-speak it to our day and generation, knowing that the same Spirit that gave the Word to them works with us to apply it to hearts and lives today. We pray in Jesus' strong name.